Getting ready to take on spring? Make your first move with the reliable performance and power of steel tools. From hedge trimmers and mowers to string trimmers and more, right now save $30 on the American-made steel FS56 RCE trimmer. Real steel. The FS56 RCE is made in America of U.S. and global materials. Offer valid through June 16, 2024. See participating retailer for details. Live from the 6th and Peabody studio and across the OutKick network, this is OutKick 360 with Jonathan Hutton, Chad Withrow, and Paul Kuharski. Final hour Friday edition alongside Paul Kuharski. I'm Jonathan Hutton. Withrow back with us on Monday. Each and every Friday to kick off the final hour on the show, we're joined by Brent Hubbs or Austin Price, or in some cases, both. We talk football, SEC headlines, ball quest, and more with all things Tennessee-related topics. And uh, we will get to the U.S. Open leaderboard coming up in about 20 minutes. We will talk Derrick Henry uh, and his future with the Tennessee Titans and what Paul and I expect for production. That's coming up later this hour, but we start as always, with Brent Hubs. Brent, hope you're doing well. I am. Hope you guys are doing well on this Friday. Yes. I'd like to start um, just telling, uh, we don't need the history of the Haslam family by any means, but (laughs) if we said, hey, uh, NIL and um, big, big supporters, boosters of programs, there are names and families that come to mind, and the one synonymous with the University of Tennessee are the Haslam's. Bill Haslam, former Tennessee governor, um, official today through the organization, the Nashville Predators, have announced that Bill Haslam has agreed to become the majority owner of the Nashville Predators in due time. He's going to start out as a minority owner um, with Herb Fritch's shares and then eventually buy out those shares to become the majority owner of the NHL franchise here in in the state's capital. I don't know how well you know the former governor of Tennessee. I know you certainly are familiar and know the family um, and the successes that they've had, Brent. Um, man, they, they continue to climb the ladder, so to speak, of all things sports and all things business, politics. I mean, they, they're across this state and, and across the, the sports landscape. Yeah, no doubt. And uh, of course, they were in the political landscape for a long time. There were lots of people who thought that the aspirations for Bill Haslam exceeded beyond the governor, um, mm-hmm. the, the governorship of the of the state of Tennessee. I uh, thought that he might be um, in the Senate um, and, and who knows how far up the political um, landscape he was going to go. Then there was talk that he might want to get involved and try to be the president uh, of the University of Tennessee, which he never had aspirations to do And talking to people. He, it made a lot of sense before Randy Boyd became the president, you know, just because of the name recognition and, and obviously what that family has meant to the university, uh, but uh, did not want to go that route and um, has obviously decided to, to kind of get into the, the game that, that his brother's involved in and that is sports ownership. And um, obviously it's been a tough go in Cleveland with the Browns that they've had a, a turnover, a lot of turnover in the front office. And a, I think there's been a lot of learning on the job with that one. 
Um, and, and I'm sure that, that that's something that, that Bill Haslam will use to try to help him uh, immerse himself and, and, you know, become a hockey owner. Uh, I think one of the differences between the two is that when you, in, you bought, you know, when the Haslam's bought the Cleveland Browns franchise, they were the owners immediately. Yep. And this is a situation where Bill Haslam's obviously going to be able to learn uh, a lot about being an owner as a minority owner uh, before he becomes the majority owner. Lots of relationships, obviously, in the state of Tennessee with, with corporate people, and, and that's important in the sports landscape in terms of the corporate dollars that are out there. And, and obviously, their name carries a lot of weight in the state of Tennessee, for sure. And, and Paul, I think it's safe to assume, and, and maybe uh, maybe I'm forgetting the report, but I, I think we discussed it on, on Midday 180 years ago. Um, if Jimmy Haslam could have purchased the Tennessee Titans, he would have. Um, and, and, yes. and the late Bud Adams wasn't going to sell it. Yep. And, of course, his family inher- he inherited the team, and Amy Adams Strunk, his daughter, runs the team as the, the controlling Browns. owner. But point he being... He the Browns from uh, owner. Yeah. And, and, and point being, Brent, they, they certainly not only... They're certainly big in business, and they are big in the state of Tennessee. So uh, for those that are wondering about what's the new owner like, if you know nothing about Bill Haslam... Um, it, it, he certainly committed to not only this this area but this state. Well, and they love sports. I think that's the other thing. That doesn't mean they get it all. They always get it right. At one right. point, they 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 had a, a small minority ownership in the Pittsburgh Steelers. Um, they've been involved in NASCAR. Uh, they never owned a team, but they were a heavy sponsor in NASCAR at one point. They were involved there, involved in um, in soccer, yep. uh, professional soccer in in the state of Ohio. I think in Cleveland, and um, have always been involved, obviously, with the University of Tennessee, and of course, um, their their father. Um, Mr. Haslam, uh, who played at the University of Tennessee, has done unbelievable things, not just at the University of Tennessee, but in Knoxville. Every Knox County high school has an artificial turf field in football, and that's because the Haslams. Mr. Haslam paid for it. He paid for every Knox County school uh, to get turf put onto their field. So they have done a lot of um, donation work, philanthropy, um, helping this area. And and I think there's a a greater comfort for them probably in the state of Tennessee because they've had so much success in the state of Tennessee, whether it's in politics, whether it's in ownership, um, uh, business, whatever, the University of Tennessee, that uh, there's it's probably an easier transition for them doing anything in the state as opposed to trying to learn on the fly in Cleveland. Brent Hubbs, VolQuest.com with us. Um, transitioning, um, Brent, put in perspective for us um, what the season meant for Tennessee baseball and ultimately how things ended, what was lost. Well, I mean, if you want to put it succinctly, they're going to go down in probably the, the University of Tennessee history as the best baseball team that never made it to the College World Series. Um, is kind of what they are. And they gave this fan base an unbelievable ride. Um, they, they embraced everything that was brought before them. They created some things brought t- towards them by, by the way that they kind of went about their business. But they showed up every day at the ballpark, and uh, they picked a bad time to have a bad weekend and give Notre Dame credit. But Tennessee did not play well. Uh, this, was a, this is a and was a very talented, very veteran baseball team uh, that came up short of, of an expectation and a goal that they had for themselves and that fans expected. Um, Does it mean it was a disappointing season or a bad season? 
Um, as I told somebody yesterday, when you're you're planning on competing in the championship arena, um, you're, you're going to be disappointed <laughs> more than you're going to be more than you're going to be happy because you're you're going to lose more of them than you're going to win. Uh, similar to what the Titans went through this past year, right? I mean, it, you know, this was a Titans team that had a great year and, and they're getting Derrick Henry back and they're ready to go in the playoff run and then it's over. And uh, that's kind of where Tennessee was. They were everybody had assumed they would be in Omaha. And, and there's great disappointment that there wasn't that they're not in Omaha. That still doesn't take away from uh, a remarkable regular season they had, but it also doesn't. The regular season should not take away from the disappointment uh, of not being in the postseason tournament uh, at the end. Is there big uh, construction plans for for Lindsey Nelson Stadium immediately now, or is that down the road? Uh, that's going to be down the road. The, the major renovations, of course, the state is in the process and has approved fifty-seven million dollars. I think is a, is a, a ballpark number on the project. There, uh, it's got to get final approval uh, here in the next couple of weeks, which it'll get. And then Tennessee will hire an architect, and then the architect will look at the renderings and go, "We can do some of those things. We can do most of those things. Maybe we can't do all of those things." And then they'll kind of finalize that stuff, and they'll spend the next year in the design phase and the planning phase and then as soon as the 23 season is over I think you will see um, excavators moving in quickly to start uh, doing some demo and, and doing some construction that way I, I likened it to what it looks like at Augusta on Sunday evening after the, the they hand out the green jacket and everybody starts to leave you, you see this mass humanity of, <laughs> of machinery go and start destroying that golf course and I think you'll see things move quickly following that they'll do some enhancements that are more temporary enhancements, not permanent things. Uh, this off season for next year, chairbacks on the right field line, which will stay there. Uh, they were supposed to be there this year, but a supply chain issue did, did not allow them to get here in time. And there's talk of maybe extending the porches in the outfield and doing a little something there for next season before they get into the the real meat and potatoes of overhauling a stadium that's long past overhauling. That stadium is 13th or 14th probably in the SEC in terms of facilities and uh, it's it's long overdue for a, more than just a facelift and it's going to get one starting uh, after the 23 season. While we're on the topic of renovations, uh, what's the status of things at the football uh, level and um, are they going to be tight against the schedule or should they be in better order than that? Uh, I mean, they'll be tight, but you're going to be tight from the get-go. I mean, you're 77, 76 days, something like that from, from the first game. Um, the, the, the Basically, what they have done, that all of the framing is done for the new Jumbotron in the north end. They have not put all the electronics in it, but from a structural standpoint, it's ready for the panels to go in. It appears um, the, the south end Jumbotron, new panels are in. Uh, they, they've got the um, kind of the light standards up for the new VOLS signs, which will be on the each side uh, of the Jumbotron in the south end. And then in terms of the club seats, um, the, the concrete is in uh, for, for the base of those club seats. They haven't put the seats in, so they would go in next. Uh, and then they've got a lot of work to do at the club level underneath. And, and they will not have every bell and whistle in that thing ready to go at the start of the season. It'll be used. It'll be functional 
but they will not have every um, decor and everything exactly done the way that it's going to be finished out. But they are in the process of getting the heavy stuff done, Paul, so they can get the cranes out of there and and the heavy concrete trucks and stuff out of the stadium uh, so that they can reside the field. Because you also got to reside part of that field on the west sideline uh, and get your field ready to play too. So they're on track. Uh, weather's been great. It's obviously hot, but it's been dry, so they've been able to get a lot of stuff done. And they appear to be in, in you know, not way behind or not an issue there, but they're going to be up to the gun as you always are when you do this kind of major renovation in an offseason. We're visiting with Brent Hubbs, VolQuest.com on Outkick 360. What is at stake recruiting-wise this weekend? It's a big one, and um, who, who's the main competition in the SEC that Tennessee's going against that now is it's a big, it's a big weekend for? Well, it's a big weekend this weekend. It's probably even bigger weekend next weekend in terms of the number of guys that they will have in um, in terms of total bodies. But when you look at this weekend, a couple names jump out to you. C.J. Allen is a linebacker uh, from down in the state of Georgia. Tennessee is trying like crazy uh, to, to get in there and be in that one. They need to have a great weekend with him. I think Georgia is the clubhouse leader there right now. Um, then they've got an offensive lineman from Alabama in by last name of McEldery. Um, who is committed to Georgia. They're trying to flip there. That's probably a tough deal. And then maybe a, a player that's as important as anybody is Cam Seldon from up in Virginia and, and probably Virginia Tech, uh, Penn State, Tennessee. Clemson's been in that. I think he was a little bit turned off by Clemson because Clemson pushed really hard for a commitment last week or a couple of weeks ago and kind of put the squeeze on him. And I don't think he was interested in getting squeezed at this point, but he's a guy that I'm not saying he's Debo Samuel, but he's a guy who can play running back. He can play wide receiver at the college level, uh, both and is a kind of do it all athlete type guy, a real playmaker that Tennessee likes a lot. Then you got TJ Searcy, who's a defensive end from down Georgia that I think that I think Tennessee, I won't say they're in a great spot with him, but, but I, I do think they're doing okay there with him right now. Uh, good weekend for him to be in town. And then they've got a couple of other offensive linemen. Uh, Stanton Rimmel uh, is from Alabama as well. I think Tennessee has had a really good dialogue with him. So it's a big weekend for him uh, in terms of you know, it, it's totally different. And we, I spent most of my career uh, in the wintertime trying to figure out, you know, if, if a guy was going to make it in from an ice storm or not make it in and could they get around the basketball games and could they get their five visits in in four weeks and that type of thing. It's totally different now. Uh, you make so much of your hay in June and, and you try to get commits and then you try to hang on to December. Uh, and, and it's an important month for every school out there. The next two weeks are important for Tennessee in terms of probably – 30 total official visitors here over the final two weeks before the July dead period kicks in. I, I realize it's a, it's a national recruiting search here for, for the SEC level uh, and, and many levels. Uh, but you, you mentioning rattling off where these kids are from, I think regions. And mm -hmm. is there any significance to the fact that the defensive guys that they're after are from the state of Georgia and they're competing against the Georgia defense for those dudes compared to, you mentioned the Debo Samuel of, of, of what he could mean to this offense. He's from Virginia and they're competing against Clemson and Penn State. Am I reading too much into the type of player and who's recruiting them? 
No, I think you, I think it's more regional. I mean, you know, I think the, the young man from Virginia has got, you know, Virginia Tech makes more sense. Penn State uh, has done more in Virginia than, than Georgia. I mean, Virginia's not really in Georgia's recruiting footprint. Not saying they won't go get a great player from Virginia. Right. Uh, but but Georgia makes a lot of hay in, in South Carolina and in, and in Florida and Georgia and Alabama. Now, they've recruited much more nationally the last few years, given their success. Uh, but but I, I don't. I don't think that suddenly, you know, Cam Seldon's not a Georgia worthy or Georgia caliber player. I just don't think that um, he has a whole lot of interest in Georgia. And, and I think Georgia feels comfortable with where they're at at running back and, and some of their other positions as well. Um, but but I think when you look at the footprint, it's always going to come back to regional stuff. I mean, yes, you're going to go get some kids from California from time to time. And obviously, Tennessee's got a big time commit and Nico from California. Um, but at the end of the day, I think you're going to build your core, your class around a footprint. That footprint for Tennessee is the state of Tennessee, um, some in Virginia, trying to get in North Carolina. South Carolina's harder than it's ever been, I think, with Clemson's emergence compared to 15, 20 years ago. And then there's just a you know, Georgia's the heaviest recruited state, I think, in the country per capita. Now, Texas is a bigger state. Florida's a bigger state, California. But when you look at the state of Georgia, the quality of players that come out of there and the schools that come and try to recruit in the state of Georgia, Clemson, South Carolina, Florida, Florida State, Miami, Alabama, Auburn, LSU, Tennessee, Georgia. I mean, the, the big boys are converging on Atlanta and, and, and the state of Georgia and, and are recruiting that state as hard. I mean, Georgia is hard to get in there and get involved with. The dogs can't take everybody. They're going to get a bunch of them, but they can't take everybody because there's a high number of big-time talented guys coming out of the state of Georgia every year, and they seem to be more defensive guys than offensive guys year in and year out. That's not always the case, but it feels like that right now, and it has felt that way for a while. Britt, maybe the biggest recruiting headline to watch is on the hardwood. Rick Barnes is headed to Philadelphia. There is a five-star top five prospect in Justin Edwards that the Vols are after. Yeah, and and I, you know a lot of people think Tennessee's in a great spot with him and may even lead. I, I don't. I'm not ready to say that. I think Tennessee is um, recruiting him and has prioritized him as much, if not more, than anybody else in the country from a school standpoint. When Rick Barnes is on the is on the road and, and he's prioritizing going to watch a kid specific kid play uh, in a time this is. I mean, this is not a window of you know an AAU tournament where there's all the big boys are in one gym playing. This is kids are playing for their high school team. So you may go and sit in a gym and watch four games and there might be one high major prospect in that gym. Uh, and this one just happens to be, you know, a five-star guy that Rick Barnes has fallen in love with and Tennessee's doing everything they can to try to land him. He's been on campus a couple times. They got to get him back on campus. Uh, but Tennessee seems to be in, in as good a shape as anybody else is right now, and he is definitely Rick Barnes's priority in this class. You say it's um, rephrase or, or say it again. You, you said you're many are high on him. They think he's leaning one way, or that Barnes is high on his pecking order. But it may not be the case from your perspective. Am I getting that right? No, no. He he's at the top of Tennessee's pecking list. I where, mean, that, that's where where is, where's no- Tennessee for him though. I think Tennessee is I, – I would not call them the clear-cut leader, but I think they're at the okay. top of the of the list. They are not They are not trying to get into the top-tier group. They are in the top-tier group. Now, some people think Tennessee may be out in front of everybody else. I'm, a, I'm not ready to say that at this point. Uh, but gotcha. they, are, they are definitely at the top of – you know, in the top-tier group of schools that he's considering right now. 
Final thing for you. Uh, normally, in, in, in recent years for sure, this time of year, we have been discussing strength and conditioning for the football program with you. It's been quiet in that regard. Is that on purpose? Yeah, that's by design by the head strength coach, Kurt Schmidt. Um, I don't want to say works in shadows, but but he just is a guy who is a no-nonsense guy. I, I don't think he's done an interview with anybody since he's been hired at Tennessee. I, personally, I've never met the guy. Um, he, he is not – you couldn't pick him out in the picture on the sideline. Um, he, he is a very low-key, let's go to work every day. Guys, let's go to work. That, that's why you see – some pictures, but you don't see a ton of, you know, guys in the lab videos and, and a whole lot of social media stuff out there. Um, he's not flamboyant. You know, he's not the guy. And then there's nothing wrong with these other guys, but he's not walking around in the fourth quarter, the second half, never putting his hands down. And, you know, he, he's not meeting the guys coming off the field, trying to tackle them and body bump them and all those things. Not his style, man. And uh, that this team obviously had a great offseason last year when you think about learning a new system, playing a total different style of football. This team was in great condition last fall because they didn't have a ton of depth. And, and this team did not deal with a bunch of injuries. And they didn't have a bunch of guys run out of gas when you look at the volume of snaps that people played. Did a great job last summer getting them ready. One would think they would be only a year better because they all understand what's to be done. Uh, he just doesn't want any – he's just not interested in anybody knowing what he's doing. He just wants to go to work every day and get a football team ready to hand back to Josh Heupel and all August and say they're yours let's go see what we can get done I don't uh, I don't mind that um, personally but at the same time it's very rare to find a strength and conditioning coach at a top program that isn't more flamboyant just to get some attention and whatever else they want to do right it's uh it's unusual uh, to say the least but it is but it, it's also unusual not to speak about it from a Tennessee perspective because they've gone through so many guys recently and now <laughs> yeah, I mean, at least they have some stability there and, and and again, as somebody told me too, what's he going to say if he has a if he has a media deal? We're working harder than we've sure. ever worked. Yep. I mean yeah. that's I mean they they've only used that line, Paul, since um, since Washington crossed the Potomac, probably right. I mean people are just Everybody working does. harder than ever before. Best shape of their lives. But you know what? It, you? It's uh, it's not as much about what they say in a media deal as much as it is like releasing a video, a hype video of a workout or right. I'm screaming or right. something. Right. We Box seen jumping. Box yeah, jumping. When, yeah. Wouldn't you like to have a coach go to SEC media days one time and just stand at the podium and go, I mean, we've had a terrible summer. I mean, our guys, I mean, our guys don't even come, they don't come to the complex. I mean, we don't see anybody getting work done. I mean, had a couple we of may shoulders pop out. Yeah, I mean, we, we may have lost weight this summer, not gained any muscle. Wouldn't you love to have that kind of conversation? Instead, you know, everybody's worked harder than they've ever worked, and uh, it's the hardest working team they've ever had in the program, and they're bigger, faster, stronger than ever before. There's, just uh, you know. grin and bear it and get through the off season. Uh, <laughs> you know, media fans just hit the fast forward button and get to get to fall camp. Amen. That, let's get to it. Uh, it's uh, hey, it's about forty days away, something yeah. like that for Tennessee. I mean, it's it's going to happen in a hurry. It, it's it will not be uh, it will not be very long before it's here and they're ready to go. Yeah, the unofficial kickoff to the the fall will be coming up uh, in in what, next month, middle of next month for the SEC Media Days down in Atlanta this year. Brent, thank you as always, man. And uh, we will uh, hit the fast-forward button with you, and uh, we'll chat next Friday. Have a good weekend. All right. Sounds good. Thanks, guys. Appreciate you. Yep. There's Brent Hubbs, VolQuest.com, uh, for the very latest on the Vols and, and SEC tie-ins um, from the Southeastern Conference perspective. Let's chat a little Derrick Henry when we come back. Let's. Um, 
he's practicing. He looks fine. I mean, he he looks healed, and we knew that before. Whenever he was cleared to play in the in the playoffs, but now now it's time to talk expectation for the 2022 season and where we see the platform for number 22 in 2022. That's next, plus a U.S. Open leaderboard update for you on Outkick 360. You ready? Showtime. On May 3rd, summer starts with the fall guy. Let's do it later. Let's drink a spicy margarita. Make some bad decisions. Yes. Audiences are falling in love with the most entertaining film of the year. Fall Guy. Fall Guy. Fall Guy. That's what the poster said. See Ryan Gosling and Emily Blunt in the movie critics say exists to make you happy. Trying to make out? Nope. Because I don't either. It's not what I'm into right now. What are you into? Talking. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) The Fall Guy. Only in theaters May 3rd. Read it PG-13. I'll kick 360 rolls on. Happy Friday to you from everyone. Here at Outkick, to all of you across the Outkick network. Sixth and Peabody, our location, with Yeehaw Beer and Old Smoky Moonshine. Colin Morikawa at four under, tied for the lead at the U.S. Open on day number two, uh, along with Joel Dahman, who is one under through ten, and he is also at four under, uh, again, tied for the lead. Scotty Scheffler. Uh, a solid round today at three under for the tournament now after the three under round. Tied for third along with Nick Hardy and Hayden Buckley. John Rahm is there as well. He is having a great round this afternoon. Two under through 15. Three under for the tournament. And he's going to be there right at the top for the weekend. David Lingmurth at three under as well. He, was, he, he, he held the lead. Uh, by himself at one point today at the U.S. Open. Um, Aaron Wise, Sam Burns, Matthew Fitzpatrick, Adam Hadwin, and Callum Terran are others that are within the top 10 of striking distance for the U.S. Open taking place at Brookline at the Country Club. Uh, names of note, Brooks Kepka, Hideki Matsuyama, Xander Shoffley, at even par. That, that means they're tied for 22nd. Justin Thomas and Dustin Johnson, along with Patrick Reed, at one over. That puts them tied for 31st. The cut line right now remains at plus three. So three over for the tournament is where you need to be. If you're, wor- if, if you're interested in, in Mickelson, he's nowhere near that. Uh, he's at 11 over. Um, not going to make the cut. Cut line right now is at three over, uh, which has uh, players like lo- looking through the the leaderboard real quick. I can tell you who's around there. Mickelson's um, back in Arizona. Sergio Garcia is right there, um, right there on the cut line, for instance. Yeah, Mickelson's long back in Arizona or wherever he. Yeah, he's calls gone. Home. He gone. Gone. This is going back to, and this won't happen with him. But this is where I would love for a network. To put Mickelson on a headset. Broadcast. Or a, uh, not Mickelson, but like uh, someone. Someone who misses That the played the course now heads to the booth if they so choose. I, I think there would be certain guys who would be all for that. At least I would hope so. I think it would add to the broadcast that's already good on NBC, on CBS, and, and beyond. Um, Paul, I, I wrote a column at, at outkick.com saying that to me, Derrick Henry's still king at his position. There are a lot of uh, 
those that are trying analysts and I, I realize like they, they have to switch up the conversation and a lot of this is based on like recent production and if you're looking at the most recent production Henry's been hurt Henry came back last year for the playoff game and while it was not great and the Bengals defense shut down the Titans run game and it was a one and done I think it's important to note that over the last several months he hasn't been rehabbing as much as he's been training and I think there's this perception that he's been rehabbing the injury and it's going to be a slow go early on for him within the offense. I think it's the exact opposite. I look at what's around him and how this offense is built and think that he's got to be the bell cow early on as they wait on whatever's going to happen with their top pick in the draft, Traylon Burks at wide receiver, as they have... Um, uh, Woods come off the ACL. No matter how ahead of schedule he looks right now, it's not he's not fully healthy. Um, he's only six months removed from the from the injury. It, it, you see where I'm going yeah. here. I, I think the offense still goes through him, and given the fact of his production before he got hurt last year, I I'm not. While I'm not sitting here banging the drum that they've got to extend the, the contract extension for Derrick Henry. I'm not one bit hesitant to say I think he can go out and lead the league in rushing again. Well, the offense definitely rolls through him still. I think you're right there for sure. Um, I am a little more cautious than you are. Um, I need to see it again. Um, I'm concerned about left guard and right tackle because Roger Saffold and a very good run blocking line are not the same as they were. Aaron Brewer makes up for a lack of size. The probable left guard with quicks and smarts and athleticism. Right tackle, we have no idea. Looks like Dylan Radins is probably the front runner now. I don't have a lot of confidence in him at all. I don't like his mentality. It doesn't seem like a go-getter, an aggressive player to me. Um, so I think those are things that could hurt Derrick Henry that aren't Derrick Henry things. Um, I'm not as concerned about his foot as I am about what his foot might foretell the foot to me might be the beginning of the new stage of Derrick Henry's career where after heavy heavy usage things start to come undone so I'm not saying that Jones fracture in his foot and the steel plate and the five screws are a problem it could be, but we've seen people come back from that and it's repaired and it's not an issue. Though that is a very fragile part, the most fragile part of your body, really. Um, it's not like if you get stepped on or whatever, it goes bad. You just hope that, that the, the hardware Holds does, up. does its job, right? There's no apparent... My question is... Is he now in line for the next injury that comes as a result of that wear and tear? Because that's the first one. So is he fortunate that all of this wear and tear has led to one injury? He comes back from that and he's got another good stretch of uh, 600, 800 carries in front of him without another thing happening? Or is that a harbinger that Derrick Henry's reached a point, as all running backs do, no matter how superhuman this one is, where things start to go wrong for him. I just, um, maybe I'm completely missing the, the mark here. 
um, which I'll admit whenever it happens. But I, and I we don't, kind of admitted it with this one. Like I we came into last season saying, "Hey, something could go wrong for him, but we're not going to predict oh, but, it until we see it because the guy's been supernatural." But through, so, so I think we have to put in perspective what pace he was on when he got hurt in Indy. It was going great. He was on pace for 1,991 yards, which and means... he gets better in the second half. Yeah, which, which means he, w- he was on pace to become the first player in NFL history. Not just with... I mean, he would, he would have done this back-to-back, but he, he was on pace to become the first running back in NFL history to rush for 2,000 yards in two separate seasons. And he might, have done, he was on 16, he might have done it in 16 games, making the 17th game moot. But now like the there's a um, there's now this sentiment. Pro Football Focus has him as the third rated back in their tier, and that puts him below the elite category. I don't who, know who uh, Jonathan Taylor. I can I can Jonathan Taylor and Nick case. Chubb are ahead of him. But here's so my Chubb's issue. Nick Chubb's got a split workload. Here's my issue with the way I don't know how their algorithms are working with all this, and they're they're well respected. I'm not trying to rip into every single thing that PFF does by any means. But if you're going to point to Derrick Henry's foot as an issue, and you're going to put him at third, you cannot have Christian McCaffrey as your fifth best back in the league. Agree. So get out of here with the injury stuff for the excuse of why you don't have him Henry rated higher. To me, this is more about just swapping up a list for the sake of swapping up a list and having discussion. What I'm here to tell you the guy, when healthy, is the best running back in football right now. And let me go back to my point on the carries. I agree that there is a line of demarcation. It, sometimes you can. Um, sometimes people point to 1,800 carries. Um, for this sake, we're pointing at 1,500 because he's just over 1,500 carries. And the vast bulk of them have happened within the last four seasons. Uh, that's also a factor here, um, which I think goes against him because that's a huge little crop of carries within a – four season span because the he had a hundred and a handful a hundred and a handful of carries in his rookie season no more than 230 carries i think it was uh through and like work below his like, first two years yeah but demarco murray was here he's splitting reps i mean he was he was not king henry uh but since then he has been the bell cow and you know he's he had the contract extension after they franchise tagged him and he's been awesome um Point being, I don't view him as like the guy that... So if we're going to compare him to 1,500 carries in the drop-off, like we're putting him in the same conversation with some of the... Some some running backs that I don't... I, I just think he's better than. Like if we're going to compare him to an all the all-time great list, which... If we're being fair to the conversation, if he rushes for 2,000 yards again, he's in the Pro Football Hall of Fame. He's considered among the best to ever play the position. I put him closer to that category than I do closer to the end of the career, which is typical for the running back position nowadays. I think he's in a different status than your typical back. So whenever I hear about these bulk carries, I I don't hesitate to say... I. I, and I'm, I'm forecasting this season for this conversation. Again, I started this by saying I'm not here pounding the drum for a contract extension. But I'm here. I'm, I'm more willing to, if I were putting money on this, to bet on him being successful 
then I, then I would say him having a drop-off or him not being the, the running back within the offense that we've seen in recent years when healthy. We can't predict his health. And one injury can certainly lead to another. There's no doubt about it. But the way he rehabbed and came back and played and was cleared and the way he's just driven to do it, it would have been very easy to just go on IR and come back this season. And he didn't do that. To me, that factors into why I'm so confident that if, if he's on the field, he's going to be producing well, at a very know, high level. We know his mentality. I mean, he was never going to not make it back for a playoff game if he could. Look, 2019, 303 carries for 1540. 2020, 378 for 2027. We're not counting um, the playoffs here, obviously. You're foreseeing the potential for him to repeat 2020. I'm leaning more towards 2019. And if he ran for 1,500 yards, to me, that would be a stellar season. The, 20, the 2027 yard oh, season yeah. is superhuman, right? And that's 378 carries. I, I think, you know, they drafted Hassan Haskins, mm-hmm. um, who looks to be a pretty good back who's in the mold of Derrick Henry. So they didn't draft that guy as a change-up. And I don't think they drafted him strictly as an insurance policy either. I think after watching Deontay Foreman do some of the things that Derrick Henry does, minus the home run hitting, but run very effectively after Derrick Henry ran out, shockingly effectively, I would say. I agree. When they maintained their identity, which we all thought was crazy, once Henry went down for the nine games he was out. I think Haskins will get a little bit of carries. I don't think they're concerned about his usage because I think they're all about we'll use, uh, and I'm totally on this theory, use him until run him into the ground. Run him into the ground and then worry about later, later. It's not like you save him and say, oh, I've got to worry about 2024 right now. No, Mike Vrabel's not going to think that way. And as long as he's going good, you go with him. But I think they're more likely if he has two series that aren't great to maybe look at Haskins in the third series than they would have been previously. And I I think 1,500 or something in that ballpark is more likely than 2,000. I hear you on that. And I factored this into my column. I didn't specifically mention it, but I was thinking of why he wouldn't get the same rate and bulk of carries that he has in the past. And the prime example for me as to why I, I think some of... You have to factor in that he came off the injury last year was cleared to play and the Bengals shut him down and they 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 didn't go to Foreman. To Foreman. And Foreman had, had a good just run in that produced game. over a two month stretch. And, and Foreman ran well in that game, in the Cincinnati so, game when he got the ball. So I'm thinking well. to myself, Paul, and I again they, they drafted Haskins. Him. I'm with you. But do I really think that in the third quarter of week six, just a random week, that they're going to say, you know what? Um, this is a series we're going to put Hassan Haskins in. Not predetermined. They're going to turn and hand how it the to game's him going. again. Based on how the game's going. But if he's had two bad series, I don't think they're going to say, like, I, I think they'll, they'll give Haskins a couple carries. A couple more. Yeah. but work, And that Henry will get but, 18 instead of 23. But the, on um, some weeks. Okay. But... Um, even early last year, he was getting 18. Now, he's averaged in the last... On a game, I'm saying. in the. It's not unusual, uh, especially if they start trailing early and um, they're, they're trying to 
work their way back into a game. They'll they'll stay with the run. Yeah, they stick with but it, that's they, for sure. No, they, they are not hesitant to be down 17 points. They've done it in Carolina and turn around and give them the football. My point is um, they've also played winning football with him getting less than 20 carries. Yeah, and you think of the number of carries he gets. Uh, you know, we have to factor in here. He's two down back. I mean, he's not on the field much on third down. That's right. Third and short, maybe. Third and four, no. Um, 44 games over the last three seasons. So this factors in five playoff games also, three of which or two of which were monster games uh, in 2019. 1,021 carries in 44 games. That's an average of 22 a game. So he's at 22 carries a game for 44 games. And that's without the last nine games of last season, nine regular season games of last season. It's just a ton of work. Nobody's more capable of taking that ton of work than he is, but even he is going to drop off of that ability to take that workload. Yeah, I I would just... uh Final thought, I, I'm just not willing to say it's this year. I, it, of course, I'm not willing to say it's massive like people are predicting. Yeah. And one of the things that drives these things are the fantasy lists, which yes. go year-round. I'm shocked how much reading about who the, the top five fantasy backs are there is in April. I know. And, and that's what generates a lot of this conversation. No doubt. And it's a good debate. I mean, we can have the discussion that there could be a drop-off. One thing is for sure. Um, if they're going to give Henry less carries, they're not giving Ryan Tannehill more passes. Like it, it, it will. It, this is still a run first oh, team. Um, Hilliard, Haskins, load up and go. Yeah, uh, Trent and Cannon. I don't. I don't really understand <laughs> that. But uh, barring injury, again, all this barring injury. I always, hate having to always. predicate everything we say based on that. Uh, in case of. Uh, you know, old takes exposed. We'll or be whatever. talking about him plenty, Derek. Uh, for sure. Uh, coming up, we look ahead to the weekend, tell you what to watch, and get you ready for what's going to be a fun week ahead on Outkick 360. Get ready for the greatest roast of all time the Roast of Tom Brady, a Netflix live event happening May 5th. Hosted by Kevin Hart, the seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. Outkick 360, roll it on on this Friday. Uh, Here's a strange twist of fate. Uh, Teron Davenport from ESPN reported this. Part of the group that Jeffrey Simmons is retaining now, uh, actual agents, walking business sports group, a team of advisors and negotiators, uh, includes NFL agent Paul DeRossel. Um, Five-time Pro Bowler Andre Garrod will also serve an advisory role. So the last dominant defensive tackle the Titans had, Albert Hainsworth, stepped on the face of Andre Garrod, who will now help negotiate the next defensive tackle's contract. The helmet stomp. Jeffrey Simmons. Strange twist. Very much so. Uh, And then his um, uh, Jason Hatcher is Simmons' uncle. He's the head of this whole deal. Is this this like... uh, Help me with this, There's too many cooks, it seems to me. Um... Is this a situation where they are attempting? I say they, his his group, his team of 
advisors. It's better to say group because when you say team, people think the Titans. Is this a situation where they're attempting to pay uh, one lump sum up front for helping negotiate this contract? And then, I don't know. And, it's a good and, question. Instead of 3% a year or whatever the fee is. You see what I'm saying? Like, so it's, it's a good question because if they're paying, if he's paying 3%, you know, it'd be spread out to Hatcher, this Duracell, um, and and you know then garage in it. And, and I know we don't know. Role. I'm just I trying to. How it all I'm be, trying to make to sense done. of this. Like why you would go through the trouble of just just hire an agent. Well, you wouldn't if you're if you're not trying to pay that guy every single year based off your earnings. I would try like hell to do a lump sum thing, but I I don't know how many people will go along with that. It um, it feels like that's what they're doing. I don't know. Like again, I I don't know if if you weren't doing that, you just hire an agent and go about your business, I, and negotiate. I, I will ask Jeff about that when training camp starts, but I doubt I'll get a lump straight sum agent. makes sense for a lot of players, especially if you're going to get the type of money he's expecting. Um, and are you? I mean, we won't know until training camp rolls around if if uh, the extension is going to get worked out. That's normally when the Titans extend players, but they're at least open to the thought of this. And I mean. If he signs now, to me, the Titans are getting a deal because I, I think a year from now he can make a lot more if he doubles up what he yeah, did. I mean, what it's he a just traditional did, risk and he's that reward. consistent to do it. Traditional risk reward. Or he could get hurt, you know, and yeah. be frozen in time in terms of uh, production. I just, as a team, I wouldn't want to be like, well, we're going to wait on negotiating you because you could get hurt. I, to me, it's, uh, you, put some, you have some outs in there within your contract extension for injury. And I, I know there are guarantees, but the guarantee, I mean, he could get hurt a year after you extend him a year from oh, yeah. now. And that's it's gonna, still going to cost you more. That's not the reason to wait for me. The reason to wait for me is precedent. I don't want to negotiate with every guy, every guy who plays well for me after three years. And this would signal that, that you're playing ball based on A.J. Brown and Jeffrey Simmons. U.S. Open and Stanley Cup Final. We'll be chatting about that on Monday. Looking forward to it. Happy Father's Day weekend, Paul. Thank you. Chad, if you're watching, everyone in studio, happy Father's Day weekend. Have a great one. Stay cool. We're back at it on Monday for Outkick 360 across the Outkick Network. Don't you dare block the box. Do lock your locks. And keep Brittany Griner top of mind. Free her.